Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome everyone to the Mysteries Abound podcast. This is your host Paul and this is episode 118. Our podcast this week is entitled, Why Are We the Only Human Species Still Alive? Two million years ago in Africa, several species of human-like creatures roamed the landscape. Some looked surprisingly similar to each other, while others had distinct defining features. In September 2015, another species was added to that list. Hundreds of bones discovered in a South African cave are now believed to belong to a new species, known as Homo nalidi. There may well be many more extinct hominem species waiting to be uncovered. Our own species appeared around 200,000 years ago, at a time when several others existed. Yet today, only we remain. Why did we manage to survive when all of our closest relatives have died out? From the BBC.com A story by Melissa Hoganboom Why are we the only human species still alive? To start with, it's worth pointing out that extinction is a normal part of evolution. In that sense, it may not seem surprising that human-like species known as hominins have died out. But it is not obvious that the world only has room for one species of human. Our closest relatives are the great apes, And there are six species alive today. Chimpanzees, bonobos, two species of gorilla and two species of orangutan. There are some clues that reveal why some of our forebears were more successful than others. Several million years ago, when a great many hominin species lived side by side, they mainly ate plants. There is no evidence they were systematically preying on large animals says John Shea of Stony Brook University in New York. But as conditions changed, and hominins moved from the forest and the trees to the drier open savannas, 
they became increasingly carnivorous. The problem was, the animals they hunted also had fewer plants to eat, so overall there was less food to go around. That competition drove some species extinct. As human evolution pushed some members to be more carnivorous, you would expect to see less and less of them, says Shay. But while the switch to meat-eating clearly took its toll, it did not come close to leaving Earth a one-human planet. Until quite recently, we still shared the planet with other early humans. Rewind to 30,000 years ago. As well as modern humans, three other hominin species were around. The Neanderthals in Europe and Western Asia, the Denisovans in Asia, and the Hobbits from the Indonesian island of Flores. The Hobbits could have survived until as recently as 18,000 years ago. They may have been wiped out by a large volcanic eruption according to geological evidence from the area. Living on one small island will also leave a species more vulnerable to extinction when disaster strikes. We do not know enough about the Denisovans to even ask when they died out. All we have from them is a small finger bone and two teeth. However, we know a lot more about the Neanderthals simply because we have known about them for much longer and have many fossils. So to get at why we are the only human species left standing, we must rely on figuring out when they died out. The archaeological evidence strongly suggests that the Neanderthals somehow lost out to modern humans, says Jean-Jacques Hublin of the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany. The Neanderthals were displaced very soon after modern humans encroached on their habitat, which Hublin says can't be a coincidence. Neanderthals evolved long before us and lived in Europe well before we arrived. By the time we got to Europe, just over 40,000 years ago, Neanderthals had been successfully living there for over 200,000 years, ample time to adapt to the chilly climate. They wore warm clothes were formidable hunters and had sophisticated stone tools. But when Europe began experiencing rapid climate change, some researchers argue, the Neanderthals may have struggled. The temperature was not the main issue, says John Stewart of Bournemouth University in the UK. Instead, the colder climate changed the landscape they lived in and they did not adapt their hunting style to suit it. Neanderthals were better adapted to hunting in woodland environments than modern humans. But when Europe's climate began fluctuating, the forests became more open, becoming more like the African savannas that modern humans were used to. The forests which provided most of the Neanderthals' food dwindled and could no longer sustain them. Modern humans also seemed to hunt a greater range of species. As well as large game, they also hunted smaller animals like hares and rabbits. In contrast, there is little evidence that Neanderthals hunted similar small ground mammals according to analyses of archaeological sites in Iberia where the Neanderthals clung on the longest. Their tools were better suited for hunting bigger animals, so even if they tried, they may not have been successful at catching small animals though there is evidence they ate birds. 
They may have lured them in with the remains of other dead animal carcasses, rather than actively hunting them in the sky. All in all, modern humans seem to have a greater number of things they could do when put under stress, says Stuart. This ability to innovate and adapt may explain why we replaced Neanderthals so quickly. Faster innovation leads to better efficiency and exploitation in the environment, and therefore a higher reproductive success, says Hublin. He believes that there is something intrinsic to modern humans that helped us adapt so quickly. There is some evidence for that. We know Neanderthal tools were remarkably efficient for the tasks they were used for, but when we arrived into Europe, ours were better. The archaeological evidence suggests that we had a greater range of innovative and deadly tools. But tools are not the only things modern humans made. We also created something else, which helped us outcompete every other species on Earth. Symbolic art. Shortly after modern humans left Africa, there is ample evidence that they were making art. Archaeologists have found ornaments, jewellery, figurative depictions of mythical animals and even musical instruments. When modern humans hit the ground in Europe, their populations went up quickly, says Nicholas Conard of the University of Tübingen in Germany, which has discovered several such relics. As our numbers swelled, we began living in much more complex social units and needed more sophisticated ways to communicate. By 40,000 years ago, humans in Europe were making things any of us would recognise as art. One of the most striking is a wooden carving of a lion-human statue called the Lohenmensch, found in a cave in Germany. Similar sculptures from the same period have been found elsewhere in Europe. This suggests that we were sharing information across cultural groups from different areas rather than keeping knowledge to ourselves. It seems art was a critical part of our identity, helping to bring different groups together. In other words, symbols were a kind of social glue. They could help people organise their social and economic affairs with one another, says Conard. In stark contrast, Neanderthals didn't seem to need art or symbols. There is limited evidence they made some jewellery, but not to the extent we did. They did their hunting, cooking, sleeping, eating, sex and recreation. They didn't need a whole arsenal of symbolic artefacts to get the job done. For humans, the sharing of symbolic information has been crucial to our success. Every new idea we pick up has the chance to become immortal by being passed down through the generations. This is how language spread, for example. The fact that we made any art at all, using the same hands that made all these tools, also points to our unique capacity for behavioural variability, says Shea. We do everything more than one distinct way, he says. Often the solutions we devise for one problem, we can repurpose to solve a different one. This is something we do exclusively well. Other ancient hominins seem to do the same thing, over and over again. They found a rut and were stuck in it. Did we have a superior brain to thank for this?
and from the telegraph.co.uk website, an article by Rupert Hawksley. Have the secrets of a lost civilization finally been unearthed? When I eventually reach Graham Hancock's house, I am late and out of breath. The amateur archaeologist lives in a grand slab of a place, halfway up one of Bath's lung-busting hills, and I've been struggling with a bag full of his best-selling books. The 65-year-old opens his imposing front door, waves away my apologies, and ushers me straight down to his study, which is spilling over with books and expensive-looking curiosities. He offers me a cup of coffee and inquires about my journey. He is avuncular and chatty, not at all the wild-haired eccentric my research had led me to expect. Twenty years ago, Hancock set the cat among the academic pigeons when he published a book called Fingerprints of the Gods, a re-evaluation of mankind's past that claimed an advanced civilization was wiped out by a giant comet towards the end of the last ice age. Based on Hancock's own investigation and interviews with archaeologists and astronomers, the book claimed survivors of this cataclysm, the giant flood remembered in myths all around the world, went on to settle in locations from Mexico to Egypt and impart their ancient knowledge to the other remaining humans. Among the most attention-grabbing claims in the book were a suggestion that the pyramids of Giza were designed to store books of knowledge written by an ancient civilization, that the Great Sphinx preceded the ancient Egyptians by many thousands of years and that Plato, who wrote about Atlantis in his books, Timaeus and Critias, knew exactly where the fabled lost city was hidden. The book was an instant hit, and has to date sold more than 9 million copies around the world. Hancock, a former East African correspondent for The Economist, went on to present two documentary series on Channel 4, and became a popular lecturer in alternative history, and built up a strong fan base online. Now he has written a sequel to Fingerprints, Magicians of the Gods, which reveals explosive new evidence to support his claims. It is also warning of a comet strike that is destined to hit the Earth in 2030. The book, which is already a bestseller, has proved irresistible to fans and Hancock talks, which he has been holding to accompany the launch having been hugely popular, attracting far larger audiences than equivalent talks by Booker Prize-winning authors. What Hancock has not achieved, however, is credibility. Leading archaeologists have been denouncing his theories for decades. He has been compared to the Da Vinci Code author Dan Brown and dismissed as a pseudo-archaeologist or pyramid idiot. The organisation for whom he is delivering a talk on October 15, the Mind, Body and Spirit Company, Alternatives, also hosts events about ghosts, clairvoyance and the paranormal. Hancock has no formal qualifications in archaeology, history or astronomy. His long-standing interest in hallucinogenic drugs, they are something that society really needs, has not enhanced his reputation either. But the author says he never claimed to be an academic. 
He presents himself as a journalist who is simply reporting theories by scientists who think they can fill in some of the gaps in the history of mankind, holes acknowledged by all mainstream academics. Let's get to grips with that first of all, he says. The foundations upon which history is based look increasingly suspect. Let's no longer shroud ourselves in the illusion that mainstream historians and archaeologists are invincible. There are, according to Hancock, two smoking guns. Firstly, neon diamonds, types of diamonds that result from a cosmic impact, were recently discovered in North America. In 2014, the Journal of Geology confirmed that this matter was formed 12,800 years ago. For someone who proposed in Fingerprints of the Gods a giant cataclysm between 12 and 13,000 years ago, it is a bit of a gift from the universe to have a bunch of very major scientists now saying that there was indeed a giant comet impact 12,800 years ago, he says. Secondly, excavations at an archaeological site in Turkey called Gobekli Tepe have uncovered ruins that are at least 11,600 years ago. That is, more than 6,000 years older than other megalithic sites such as Stonehenge. A civilization capable of the advanced architecture and art discovered at Gobekli Tepe is not supposed to have existed 11,600 years ago. So, what is the explanation? We're looking at a place where the survivors of a lost civilization settled. References to these survivors, described as sages, magicians and mystery teachers of heaven, can be found in various cultures, he adds. When the evidence started to build up, my first feeling was one of weariness, he says. Because my books have been quite successful, I have been subjected to more of the scathing and withering attacks on the quality of my work and on my qualities as a human being by the academic community than anyone else. But this story needs to be told. It would be just plain wrong for me to ignore it. Do the attacks bother him? I certainly don't relish them, but I don't resent them either, he replies. If you put out an extraordinary reinterpretation of the past, then you can expect those who have invested their entire careers studying the human past to say, hang on a minute. And Hancock believes another chapter in the history of the human race is about to come to an end. In the conclusion to his new book, he writes, It is possible, indeed highly probable, that we are not yet done with the comet that changed the face of the Earth between 12,800 and 11,600 years ago. There remains, he explains, at least one large comet in the same meteor stream. In 2030, we are due to come into contact with it once again. We have fallen out of harmony with the universe. In mythological terms, we tick all the boxes for the next lost civilization, warns Hancock. Plato says it very clearly about the citizens of Atlantis. There was a time when they loved a pure and good life, but they became arrogant and cruel and no longer bore their prosperity with moderation. I think we sound a lot like that. Is Hancock really suggesting that the universe is going to punish us in 2030 for our immoral society? 
That seems an outrageous claim, even by his standards. He leans forward and looks me directly in the eye. I'm saying that that is what the ancient traditions suggest. And if you visit the show notes at www.origins.info and click on the link to this article on episode 118 of the Mysteries Abound podcast show notes, there is a video about Graham Hancock's new book, Magicians of the Gods. He does the introduction and, like I said, it runs for about an hour and a half, so might be worth a look if you're interested in his work. Maria Bertoletti Toldini was beheaded in the Italian hamlet of Brentonico in 1716. Now a judge is set to hear her case again in a bid to vindicate her. From the Guardian.com website. A woman convicted of witchcraft to get a retrial 300 years on. And this is by Stephanie kirch Gaisner. When the council in Brentonico, an idyllic hamlet nestled in the foothills of the Italian Alps, met two weeks ago, the usual debates over school autonomy and use of public land were temporarily shoved aside for a far more interesting agenda item. Whether a 60-year-old woman who was condemned to death as a witch nearly 300 years ago deserved to have another day in court. Overwhelmingly, the council decided that she did. Maria Bertoletti Toldini was not a particularly extraordinary woman, according to a local historian, who has tried to piece together details of her life. She was a childless widow who had remarried at the time of her arrest in August 1715. Months later, a trove of documents shows she was found guilty of crimes including multiple murders of children, making land barren, damaging a local vineyard, blasphemy and heresy. She was even accused of throwing a five-year-old into a pot of boiling cheese. Toldini was publicly beheaded and her body was burned where Bretonico's green manicured public park now lies. For the man who has led the charge to clear Toldini's name, a local culture minister named Quinto Canali, The effort, which he says will involve a real judge in a real court of appeals, who will be familiar with the laws of the time, is an attempt to come to grips with the brutal period in European history and strip it of its folkloric romanticism. Canali says he was inspired to act after watching a terrible theatrical reenactment of Toldini's story a few years ago, which he said was designed for tourists and deprived the victim of her humanity. Who would have had the idea of doing a comedy folkloric show on Auschwitz, he said. If we see in our history that there was something that was wrong against humanity, we have to know it and say that this history was wrong. It is important now, just as it was important a hundred years ago, and it will be important a hundred years from now. There was a murder that was not justified, that should not have happened. They killed a person with motivations that didn't exist. She was innocent. 
A historian, Carlo Andrea Postinger, who has studied documents from the period, said there were some unknowns in the Toldini case, like who first accused her of witchcraft. But he speculated that, like other women, she was probably targeted by members of her own family and close associates because of an argument, possibly over inheritance. She was probably seen as vulnerable and different, largely because of her status as a childless widow. Unlike thousands of others who were killed for being witches during the Inquisition, the Catholic Church's effort to root out heresy, Toldini was tried and condemned by a secular tribunal. She was one of the last women in the area near Brentonico, including the German-speaking region around Bolzano, to be accused of witchcraft and killed, Postinger said. At the time, Toldini was defended by a lawyer who argued that there could be natural causes for the crimes of which she was accused. A fact Postinger said was important because it showed how people's thinking was beginning to evolve, including doubts about whether magic was real. Most historians believe that 50 to 60,000 people, the vast majority of whom were women, were killed in Europe for witchcraft between the late 15th century and the early 18th century. The women were often subjected to torture and made to confess and accuse others of using sorcery. But Toldini's case stands out, Postinger said, because she did not accuse any other women of being accomplices. Brentonico's mayor, Christian Perazzoni, who is supportive of the retrial, said there had been objections, mostly about whether the issue was relevant and how much it might cost the town. He says the cost will be minimal. But they had mostly been muted. Some have also asked whether too much attention was being paid to problems women faced 300 years ago rather than today. I think there is a symbolic value in doing this also in terms of women. This was a historic injustice against women. Also in Greek tragedy, we see they always face injustice, as well as today, in different forms, the mayor says. Canali himself acknowledged that the response to his initiative had been mixed, and he sees the reactions divided along gender, education and political lines, with women generally approving of the idea and less educated men in political conservative newspapers thinking it was a waste of time. I told them, F you, as we say in Italy, he says with a chuckle. One expert who has studied witchcraft in Italy, Louise Nyholm Kallistrup, an associate professor of the University of Southern Denmark, believes that retrying Toldini serves no purpose. Of course she was a victim, but there were numerous victims. What about all the homosexuals who were burned at the stake? You have numerous people who were harmed in crimes in the past that would never be considered a crime today, she said. I think it is just an example of not acknowledging the past and history on history's terms. Asked whether it might make more sense to make sure that theatrical renditions of Toldini's life were portrayed more accurately or whether a monument in Brentonico's park might be a better way to resurrect her reputation, Canali insisted that redress by a court of law is essential to right historical wrongs. He points to the case of Nicola Sacco and Bartolomeo Vanzetti, the two Italian-born anarchists who were tried and convicted of murder and sentenced to death in the US. 
they were electrocuted in 1927, only to be vindicated decades later when the then Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis proclaimed they had been unfairly treated and that the atmosphere of their trial and appeals were permeated by prejudice against foreigners and hostility towards unorthodox political views. It is one thing to be among intelligent cultured people and talk about this, but a real trial, a real judge, that is very powerful, Canali said. Sarko and Vanzetti were useful politically after that declaration. If you let something go that happened 300 years ago, maybe you will let something go that happens now. The past is yesterday, but it is also 300 years ago. And from the coolinterestingstuff.com website. The strange case of Mr Wilson, the crazy man who tried to climb Everest. One of the strangest attempts to climb Mount Everest was by Morris Wilson, 1898-1934. An eccentric Englishman who tried to climb Everest after flying to the mountain, despite knowing nothing about mountaineering or flying. Wilson decided to climb Everest whilst recuperating from illness, forming a plan to fly to Tibet, crash the plane on the mountain's upper slopes and climb to the summit. He then learned to fly a gypsy moth plane, which he named Everest, and spent five weeks hiking around Britain for practice. He flew to India in two weeks and spent the winter in Darjeeling planning his expedition. Wilson, with no climbing equipment, approached up the Rongbucket Glacier, getting lost and crossing difficult terrain. On May 22, 1934, he tried to climb to the North Col, but failed at an ice wall. On May 31, his last diary entry read, Off again, gorgeous day. His body was found in 1935 in snow, surrounded by his blown-apart tent. The last twist in the Wilson saga was it appears he was a crossdresser who had worked in a ladies' dress shop in New Zealand. He was supposedly found wearing women's underwear and had women's clothes in his pack. A 1960 Chinese expedition added fuel to the story by finding a woman's dress shoe at 21,000 feet. It seems Mr Wilson wasn't dressed properly for the conditions. Most of what is known about Wilson's activities on the mountains itself comes from his diary, which was recovered the following year and is now stored in the Alpine Club archives. Completely inexperienced in glacier travel, Wilson found the trek up the Rongbuck Glacier extremely difficult and lost his bearing and had to retrace his steps. He showed his lack of experience when he found a pair of crampons at an old camp which would have helped him tremendously, but threw them away. After five days and in worsening weather, he was still two miles short of Rutledge's Camp 3, below the North Col. He wrote in his diary, It's the weather that's beaten me, what damned bad luck, and began a gruelling four-day retreat down the glacier. 
He arrived back at the monastery exhausted, snow-blind and in great pain from his war wounds and a badly twisted ankle. It took 18 days for Wilson to recover from his ordeal, yet he set forth again on the 12th of May, this time taking Tawand and Rinzing with him. With the Sherpa's knowledge of the glacier, they made quicker progress, and in three days they reached Camp 3 near the base of the slopes below the North Col. Confined to the camp for several days by bad weather, Wilson considered possible routes by which he could climb the icy slopes above and made a telling comment in his diary. Not taking shortcut to Camp 5, as at first intended, as should have cut my own road up the ice, and that's no good when there is already a hand rope and steps, if still there, to Camp 4. In 2003, Thomas Noy proposed that Morris Wilson might have reached the summit of Everest and died on his descent. The main evidence in support of this theory comes from an interview Noy conducted with the Tibetan climber Gombu, who reached the summit with the Chinese expedition of 1960. Gombu recalled having found the remains of an old tent at 8,500 metres. If true... This would have been higher than any of the camps established by the previous British expeditions. And Noy suggests that it must have been put there by Wilson, showing that he reached a much higher point than previously believed. Noy's theory has not found widespread support in the mountaineering community. There is much scepticism that an inexperienced amateur like Wilson could have climbed the mountain unassisted. And Chris Bonington has said, I think you can say with absolute certainty that he would have no chance whatsoever. Climbing historian Joachim Hemleb and Wilson's biographer Peter Meyer Husing have both suggested that Gombu was mistaken about the altitude of the tent and pointed out that his account has not been borne out by other members of the 1960 expedition. It has also been suggested that if the tent at 8,500 metres did exist, it might have been a relic of the rumoured Soviet expedition of 1952. From the fabweb.org website. Underground City in the Grand Canyon was documented in 1909. The latest news of the progress of the explorations of what is now regarded by scientists as not only the oldest archaeological discovery in the United States, but one of the most valuable in the world, which was mentioned some time ago in the Gazette, was brought to the city yesterday by G.E. Kincaid the explorer who found the great underground citadel of the Grand Canyon during a trip from Green River, Wyoming, down the Colorado in a wooden boat to Yuma several months ago. According to the story in the Gazette by Mr Kincaid, the archaeologist of the Smithsonian Institute who is financing the explorations, have made discoveries which almost conclusively prove that the race which inhabited this mysterious cavern, hewn in solid rock by human hands, was of oriental origin, or possibly from Egypt, dating back to Ramses. 
If their theories are born out of the translation of the tablets engraved with hieroglyphics, the mystery of the prehistoric peoples of North America, their ancient arts, who they were and whence they came, will be solved. Egypt and the Nile and Arizona and the Colorado will be linked by a historical chain running back ages, which staggers the wildest fancy of the fictionist. Under the direction of Professor S.A. Jordan, the Smithsonian Institute is now prosecuting the most thorough explorations, which will be continued until the last link in the chain has been forged. Nearly a mile underground, about 1,480 feet below the surface, the long main passage has been delved into to find another mammoth chamber from which radiates scores of passageways, like the spokes of a wheel. Several hundred rooms have been discovered, reached by passageways running from the main passage, one of them have been explored for 854 feet and another for 634 feet. The recent finds include articles which have never been known as native to this country and doubtless they had their origin in the Orient. War weapons, copper instruments sharp-edged and as hard as steel indicate the high state of civilization reached by these strange people. So interested have the scientists become that preparations are being made to equip the camp for extensive studies and the force will be increased to 30 or 40 persons. Before going further into the cavern, better facilities for lighting have to be installed, for the darkness is dense and impenetrable for the average flashlight. In order to avoid being lost, wires are being strung from the entrance to all passages, leading directly to large chambers. How far this cavern extends no one can guess, but it is now the belief of many that what has already been explored is merely the barracks, to use an American term, for the soldiers, and that far into the underworld will be found the main communal dwellings of the families and possibly other shrines. The ventilation that blows through indicates another outlet to the surface. Mr Kincaid was the first white child born in Idaho and has been an explorer and hunter all his life, 30 years having been in the service of the Smithsonian Institute. Even briefly recounted, his history sounds fabulous, almost grotesque. First I would impress that the cavern is almost inaccessible. The entrance is almost 1,486 feet down a sheer canyon wall. It is located on government land and no visitor will be allowed there under penalty of trespass. The scientists wish to work unmolested, without fear of the archaeological discoveries being disturbed by curio or relic hunters. A trip there would be fruitless and the visitor would be sent on his way. The story of how I found the cavern... I was journeying down the Colorado River in a boat alone, looking for mineral. Some 42 miles up the river from El Tovar Crystal Canyon, I saw on the east wall stains in the sedimentary formation about 2,000 feet above the riverbed. There was no trail to this point, but I finally reached it with great difficulty. Above a shelf which hid it from view of the river was the mouth of the cave. There are steps leading from this entrance, some 30 yards from what was, at the time when the cavern was inhabited, the level of the river. When I saw the chisel marks on the wall inside the entrance, I became interested, secured my gun and went in. 
During that trip I went back several hundred feet along the main passage till I came to the main crypt in which I discovered the mummies. One of these I stood up and photographed by flashlight. I gathered a number of relics which I carried down the Colorado to Yuma, from whence I shipped them to Washington with details of the discovery. Following this, the explorations were undertaken. The main passageway is about 12 feet wide, narrowing to 9 feet towards the farther end. About 57 feet from the entrance, the first passages branch off to the right and left, along which on both sides are a number of rooms, about the size of ordinary living rooms of today, though some are 30 to 40 feet square. These are entered by oval-shaped doors and are ventilated by round air spaces through the walls into the passages. The walls are about 3 foot 6 inches in thickness. The passages are chiselled or hewn as straight as could be laid out by any engineer. The ceilings of many of the rooms converge to a centre. The side passages near the entrance run at a sharp angle from the main hall, but towards the rear they gradually reach a right angle in direction. Over a hundred feet from the entrance is a cross hall, several hundred feet long, in which was found the idol or image of the people's god, sitting cross-legged with a lotus flower or lily in each hand. The cast of the face and the carving shows a skilful hand, and the entire is remarkably well preserved, as is everything in this cavern. The idol most resembles Buddha, though scientists are not certain as to what religious worship it represents. Taking into consideration everything found thus far, it is possible that the worship most resembles the ancient people of Thibet. Surrounding this idol are many smaller images, some beautiful in form, other crooked-necked and distorted shapes, symbolical, probably, of good and evil. There are two large cacti with protruding arms, one on each side of the dais on which the god squats. All this is carved out of hard rock resembling marble. In the opposite corner of this cross hall were found tools of all descriptions made of copper. This people undoubtedly knew the lost art of hardening this metal, which has been sought by chemists for centuries without result. On a bench running around the workroom was some charcoal and other material probably used in the process. There is also slag and similar stuff to mat, showing that these ancient people smelted ores, but so far no trace of where or how this was done has been discovered, nor the origin of the ore. Among other finds are vases or urns and cups of copper and gold made very artistic in design. The pottery work includes enamelled ware and glazed vessels. On all the urns on the walls over the doorways and tablets of stone which were found by the image are mysterious hieroglyphics the key to which the Smithsonian Institution hopes yet to discover. These writings resemble those found on the rocks about this valley. The engraving on the tablets probably have something to do with the religion of the people. Similar hieroglyphics have also been found in the peninsula of Yucatan, but these are not found in the Orient. Some believe that these cave dwellers built the old canals in the Salt River Valley. Among the pictorial writings only two animals are found. One is of prehistoric type. The tomb or crypt in which the mummies are found is one of the largest of the chambers, the walls slanting back at an angle of about 35 degrees. On these are tiers of mummies, each one occupying a separate hewn shelf. 
At the head of each is a small bench on which is found copper cups and pieces of broken swords. Some of the mummies are covered with clay and all are wrapped in a bark fabric. The urns or cups on the lower tiers are crude, while as the higher shelves are reached, the urns are finer in design, showing an interstage of civilization. It is worthy of note that all the mummies examined so far have proven to be male, no children or females being buried here. This leads to the belief that this interior section was the warrior's barracks. Among the discoveries, no bones of animals have been found, no skin, no clothing, nor bedding. Many of the rooms are bare but for the water vessels. One room about 400 by 700 feet was probably the main dining hall for cooking utensils are found there. What these people lived on is a problem, though it is presumed that they came south for the winter and farmed in the valleys going back north in the summer. Upward of 50,000 people could have lived in the cabin comfortably. One theory is that the present Indian tribe found in Arizona are descendants of the serfs or slaves of the people who inhabited the cave. Undoubtedly, a good many thousands of years before the Christian era, a people lived here which reached a high state of civilization. The chronology of human history is full of gaps. Professor Jordan is much enthused over the discoveries and believes that the find will prove of incalculable value in archaeological work. One thing I have spoken of may be of interest. There is one chamber, the passageways to which is not ventilated, and when we approach it, a deadly snaky smell struck us. Our lights would not penetrate the gloom until stronger ones are available. We will not know what the chamber contains. Some say snakes, but others boohoo this idea and think it may contain a deadly gas or chemicals used by the ancients. No sounds are heard, but it smells just the same. The whole underground institution gives one of shaky nerves the creeps. The gloom is like a weight on one's shoulders, and our flashlights and candles only make the darkness blacker. Imagination can revel in conjectures and ungodly daydreams back through the ages that have elapsed till the mind reels dizzily in space. In connection with this story, it is noticeable that among the Hopis the tradition is told that their ancestors once lived in an underworld in the Grand Canyon till dissension arose between the good and the bad, the people of one heart, the people of two hearts. Manchoto, who was their chief, counselled them to leave the underworld but there was no way out. The chief then caused a tree to grow up and pierce the roof of the underworld and then the people of one heart climbed out. They tarried by the Palsiavel River, or the Red River, which is the Colorado, and grew grain and corn. They sent out a message to the Temple of the Sun asking the blessing of peace, goodwill and rain for the people of one heart. That messenger never returned, but today at the Hopi village at sundown can be seen the old men of the tribe, out on the housetops gazing towards the sun, looking for the messenger. When he returns, their land and ancient dwelling place will be restored to them. That is the tradition. Among the engravings of animals in the cave is seen an image of a heart over the spot where it is located. The legend was learned by W.E. Rollins, the artist, during a year spent with the Hopi Indians. There are two theories of the origin of the Egyptians. One is that they came from Asia. Another is that the racial cradle was in the Upper Nile region. Heron, an Egyptologist, believed in the Indian origin of the Egyptians. 
the discoveries in the Grand Canyon may throw further light on human evolution and prehistoric ages. The Smithsonian says they have no record of this happening, and stories of a massive cover-up have been around since the story made print in 1909. I guess one must pose the question as to why this finding must be suppressed for over a hundred years. Perhaps solid proof of things that prove lies in the history of our world. Or an alien base kept hidden for who knows how long before its discovery in 1909. In a world that fears solid proof more each day, we may never know. Yankee Doodle went to town. Hmm, yeah. Riding on a pony. Okay. Stuck a feather in his cap and called it macaroni. Wait? What? What's going on here? Why would Yankee Doodle do something like that? What's macaroni got to do with anything? From the mentalfloss.com Why did Yankee Doodle call a feather macaroni? And it's by Erika Ockrant. The first bit of context you need in order to understand the sense of this line is that the song Yankee Doodle was not always the proud, patriotic ditty we know today. It was originally sung by British soldiers in mockery of the rough, unsophisticated American colonials they had to fight alongside during the French and Indian War. The thrust of it was, look at these ridiculous yokels. The second bit of context has to do with what was going on back in England at the time. It had become a rite of passage in the 18th century for young British men of means to spend some time on the European continent doing the grand tour, absorbing art, history and language, and becoming all-around cultured and sophisticated. When they returned, they brought back outlandish high-fashion clothes and mannerisms, and a taste for exotic Italian dishes like macaroni. As a group, they were numerous and noticeable enough to get their own nickname. They were macaroni. Yankee Doodle, bumbling bumpkin that he was, tried his best to imitate the latest style, but only embarrassed himself in the attempt. Thinking himself a fashionable dandy, he stuck a feather in his cap and somehow thought that was macaroni. That was so something a doodle, meaning fool or simpleton, dandy, would do. It turned out the rustic, ragtag Americans weren't much insulted by this and started singing the song themselves. It had a catchy tune, and they were never out to win any best-dressed awards anyway. Not only did Yankee Doodle end up a staple of the American patriotic songbook, it gave us one of the most useful words, dude, which originally meant dandy and was formed off of doodle. So, like... Yeah, feather, macaroni, call it what you want, dude. Yankee Doodle's cool with it. 
And from the paranormal.about.com website, a story by Stephen Wagner. Hitler's Prophet His influence on the Fuhrer and the Nazis may have altered history. He was a charismatic stage clairvoyant and mentalist who came to the attention of the Nazi party during its rise to power in the early 1930s in Germany. Eric Jan Hannesen might have had genuine psychic gifts, but he used his fame and powers of persuasion to increase his own wealth and his standing in the corridors of political power. But in the end, one of his most startling prophecies would lead to his death. Eric Jan Hannesen was his stage name. He was born Hermann Steinschneider on June 2, 1889, a Jew whose father was an actor and a caretaker of a synagogue. Hannesen abandoned his school education to join the circus, where he developed his showman skills as a knife thrower, fire eater and the strong man. It was during World War I as a soldier that Hannesen first began to demonstrate his psychic abilities. At one point, his company was cut off from its supply of water and the troops were becoming desperate. Hannesen, without the use of a divining rod or any other apparatus, successfully doused water for his comrades. His entertainment background and charismatic personality eventually got him a transfer to perform for the troops. When the war was over, Hannesen further developed his stage act as a clairvoyant and mentalist, performing at music halls across Germany and surrounding countries. One feat during one of his shows that brought him much attention was his revelation of details about a local murderer, details that only became known to the public when they were later published in a newspaper. It's suspected now that Hannesen may have had a confederate at the newspaper or the police department that fed him the information. But at the time, many were impressed by this prediction. Hannesen wasn't without his troubles with the law, however, but it was one arrest and trial that he was able to turn completely to his favour and elevate him to the ranks of stardom. It took place in Leitmeritz, Czechoslovakia, where he was defending himself against charges of taking money under false pretenses, that is, claiming to be able to predict the future. Hannesen's defence was that the pretenses were not false at all, that his abilities were genuine. He then set out to prove it by correctly telling the prosecutor exactly what he had in his pockets and accurately naming the contents of the judge's briefcase. Not persuaded, the judge dismissed the feat as merely one of Hannesen's stage tricks. So Hannesen offered a more impressive demonstration... He told the court, at the very moment, a man who had just robbed the commercial bank could be apprehended on Platform 2 at the Leitzmeritz train station. The stolen money, he told them, could be found in the briefcase he was carrying. The police dashed off to the train station and found the thief and the money, just as Hannesen predicted. The court had no choice but to acquit Hannesen, and the incident made him famous. It seems unlikely that Hannesen could have staged the event to prove his innocence, and there was another significant case that suggests that he might have had genuine psychic abilities. 
Hannesen was performing at La Scala in Berlin. Seemingly out of nowhere, he told a banker in the audience that a fire was about to break out in his secured safe room due to a wiring defect and that 360,000 marks were at risk of being burned up. He advised the banker to get the fire department there as soon as possible. Fire trucks were rushed to the bank and the firefighters found the faulty wiring just as Hannison saw it. In 1930, Hannison further capitalised on his fame and reputation as a mystic by starting a monthly occult magazine, Hannison Magazine, and a bi-weekly paper, Bunt Wachenschall, in which he made predictions regarding politics and national finances. In one stunning prediction, he said that one of Germany's three largest joint stock banks would suffer a collapse. The prediction was fulfilled three weeks later when Darmstadt and National was forced to close its doors. In July 1932, he published a prophecy in which he saw a river of blood flowing near Hamburg. Several days later, Nazi stormtroopers fought violently with communist Red Front fighters in Altona, Hamburg's neighbouring twin city. Known as the Bloody Sunday of Altona, the five-hour confrontation resulted in the city's gutters literally running red with blood. Was Hannison merely adept at reading the times, or did he have informants in high places? In any case, he was now sought after by the wealthy, business leaders and celebrities for private consultations. All this brought Hannison to the attention of the rising Nazi elite, Despite his Jewish heritage, he became friends with Karl Ernst, commander of Berlin's stormtroopers, Edmund Heinz, the SA Gruppenführer, and Count von Heldorf, another leader of Berlin's brown shirts. Undoubtedly, it was his connections to these men, as well as the other German elite and prominent people with whom he mingled regularly, that provided Hannesen with much inside information for his predictions. To the general public, however, his prognostications continued to enhance his reputation as a remarkable psychic. It is unclear how much influence Hannesen truly had on the success of the Nazi party in Germany and on the rise of Adolf Hitler, but it might have been significant. Some sources say that it was Hannesen who recommended that the Nazis adopt the swastika as their symbol. It was an Indian luck symbol, he told them, that promised them good fortune in their ambitions. In his paper's astrological advice columns, he always predicted that Hitler would be the winner of upcoming elections since planetary conjunctions were in his favour. Vote with the stars, he told his readers, a tactic that could have brought about a self-fulfilling prophecy. Most important was Hannesen's direct influence on Hitler himself, Hannesen was introduced to the Führer by Hitler's personal photographer, Heinrich Hoffmann. It has been claimed by several German journalists that Hannesen personally coached Hitler on his public speaking. With his formidable stage background and presence, he was able to teach Hitler how to gesture, how to emphasise phrases and dramatise his speech. They credit Hannesen, this mentalist and stage magician, with helping Hitler develop his phenomenal magnetic appeal and hypnotic rhetorical talent, which he used to lead his nation to war and delusional dreams of world dominance. 
Hennison must have seen himself as virtually untouchable and leading a charmed existence. By 1933, Hitler was Chancellor of Germany and Hannesen probably saw himself rising in stature and power along with his Nazi friends. This confidence led to his own undoing, however. Using inside information from his Nazi friends, Hannesen made a prediction he shouldn't have. It happened during one of his many social gatherings at his villa in Charlottenburg. Always the showman, he feigned a trance-like state and began to speak. I see a building, a great building in our city. It is burning, flames are roaring high, smoke is billowing. Ah, but out of the blaze there arises a bird, a magnificent phoenix, bringing new light, new hope from the ashes. Yes, the prediction certainly came true. On February 27, 1933, Germany's parliament building, the Reichstag, was set afire. The Nazis blamed it on terrorist communists, and the public was so outraged that it allowed Hitler to pass emergency laws that gave him virtually unlimited power. Of course, it is well known today that it was the Nazis themselves who burned the Reichstag in order to get Hitler in complete control. Hannesen almost certainly knew this, which is how he was able to make his indiscreet prediction. Hannesen knew too much, and he had to pay the price. As he was leaving a restaurant on the night of March 24, He was stopped in the doorway by two unidentified men and led out onto the street. Hannesen was never seen alive again. His body was discovered 13 days later in a wooded area outside Berlin. He had been shot in the head. So ends the tale of the rise and fall of Eric Jan Hannesen, a showman who might have had genuine psychic powers used his considerable abilities to gain wealth and power, might have had history-altering influence on Germany and Hitler, but whose compulsion to make startling predictions eventually brought about his death. His hubris, like that of Hitler and the Nazis, perhaps deserved only that inevitable outcome. Creepypasta.com Red Water by Murder House I was on a business trip about a year ago and I had to drive from Denver to LA. It was a long drive and I was growing tired of the road, so I stopped at the Holiday Inn Hotel that was nearby. I walked up to the desk and rang the bell. Just seconds later a man came out from the back room. Hello, sir. My name is John Shelby, the man said. How can I assist you? I'm looking for a room, I replied. Are there any available? He searched in his computer to see if a room was available. To my luck, there was one more room left. 
He gave me a key and told me to have a nice night. I asked him to point me towards a vending machine and he did just that. When I walked towards the vending machine, craving a bag of chips, I noticed a pool at the end of the hall. A lot of hotels have pools and there's nothing strange about that. What got me confused was the fact that the water was red. Blood red. I purchased my bag of chips and went back to the front desk where the man was still present. What's up with that pool back there? I asked him. What do you mean, sir? He asked, a confused look grown upon his face. Why is the water red? I said. Why is it red? He took off his glasses and took a deep breath. Well, it's kind of a freaky story, he said. Years ago, a woman was found brutally murdered in that pool, and the water was contaminated with her blood. You are telling me that her blood is still in there? No, 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 of course not, he said. The water was removed and the pool was closed down. But many people say they see the pool filled with red water. He put his glasses back on. Personally, I have never seen it, but I think this hotel likes to play tricks with your mind. So this place is haunted then? He shook his head. Yes. I was shocked, not really scared, but just surprised because I had never had an experience like that before. I went up to my room, took a well-needed hot shower, and I lay in bed. I couldn't sleep for some reason, my mind was so curious and it had so many questions that needed to be answered. I got out of bed, put on a shirt, and I walked out into the hallway. I walked down the hall and headed towards the pool. It was quiet out in the halls. I guess nobody else had trouble sleeping. I was laughing at myself when I realised I was in my underwear, so it was a good thing that nobody was out in the hall at that time. I did believe that I saw a woman cross from one room to the other, I didn't think anything of it at the time. I just figured it was another guest. When I reached the floor of the pool, I was able to see the blood-red water from way down the hall. I passed the front desk. No one was there. I then passed the vending machine and I stopped directly in front of the door that would lead to the pool. I tried the door, but it was locked. I don't think I would have gone in even if it wasn't. I looked through the large window that showed the blood-contaminated pool. It looked as if the pool had been closed for a long time. I looked behind me, down the hall to the elevator. I was imagining a scene from The Shining when the stream of blood came shooting out of the elevator. I had a feeling that I would see something similar to that, but I didn't. Instead I saw a woman standing at the edge of the pool and looking as if she was about ready to jump in. She was completely nude, not a single piece of clothing on her body. When she snapped her head my way, I jumped back in fear, and I walked back to my room as fast as I could, taking the stairs next to the vending machine instead of the elevator. Hours later, I woke up to my alarm going off. I took a shower, threw on some clothes, and I walked down to the first floor for breakfast. After breakfast, I was ready to check out and get back on the road. I decided to take one last look at the pool before I left. I walked slowly past the front desk, past the vending machine into the pool. I was still freaked out by what had happened the night before as I looked through the window. 
I was surprised to see that the pool was empty. There was no red water and there was no woman. I walked back to the front desk where a woman was working. Is John Shelby available, I asked. She gave me a confused look. Excuse me, she said. John Shelby, I repeated. He was working here last night. John Shelby died back in 82, she said. He killed himself after murdering a woman right there in that pool. She laughed. Is this a joke, sir? Yeah, I said, forcing out a laugh. It was just a joke. I returned my key and I left the building. I got back on the road, never forgetting about what had happened that night in that hotel. From the creepypasta.com, the mechanic. My boss is an absolute dipshit. Sorry, I hate to be so blunt, but that's just the way it is. My name is Sarah Collins, and I work as a personal assistant for a private law firm. It's probably safer for you if I don't mention where. Anyway, back to my arsehole sleazebag of a boss. He's a short, fat little man who walks around the office like a total big shot. Rolex watch, Armani suit, you get the picture. He's also got one of those ridiculous moustaches that looks like a gerbil sleeps on your upper lip. He's a completely sexist pig and treats me like garbage. To give you an example, the other day he walked past my desk and pretended to trip, spilling a giant glass of water over my white blouse making my shirt see-through. It was so embarrassing, I would have left ages ago if I didn't need the money so much. Simon Jones is his name. He orders me around like a dog, with no respect or praise at all. But back to the point. The other day, after his usual rounds of berating everyone in the office, he headed to his private lift to whisk him away to the safety of his ridiculously large office. Yet, When he pressed the button, a screeching noise of metal on metal filled the room and smoke billowed through the closed doors of the elevators. It was broken, which, as you can imagine, made for a pleasant morning for the rest of us. Not. He stormed into my cubicle, his stash twitching furiously. I don't care how you get it done or how much it costs, but if that elevator isn't fixed overnight, it's coming out of your pay. He leaned closer. Slut, he whispered. I lowered my gaze, my face burning ferociously. Yes, sir, I mumbled. Unfortunately, this would mean that I would have to spend the rest of the day searching for a repairman. After two hours of searching, I had made no progress and realised I was screwed. When everyone had left the office and it turned to 9pm... My finger scrolled down the web page, further and further. But I thought it was pointless. What sort of mechanic is open past nine? My heart fluttered when I saw the next ad. It didn't stand out, and the wording was dull and boring. But it was there. 
Mr. Mechanic, we fix everything. It also said that they were available whenever needed. I called their number, which was really unusual. 005-555-555. A voice picked up on the other end, male, but no emotion whatsoever. Hello, Miss Collins, it said. Hey, I replied before getting straight to the point. He was patient, and when I was finished, he said, I will depart shortly. I thanked him and hung up. I didn't realise then that I hadn't mentioned my name yet. He arrived faster than I had expected. His grey overalls were matched by his grey cap that sported the slogan on the website. He was tall and unusually slim, and his eyes were dull and glassy like marbles. I led him to the elevator and told him that I'd be catching some sleep in my office. An hour later I woke at my desk, a pool of dribble formed at my mouth. The office was eerily quiet. I looked up and the mechanic was staring at me from the door to my cubicle. All finished, he said. Great, you're a lifesaver, what's the charge? I replied. He told me there was no fee, as it was an extremely simple job. I thought he was joking, but then he nodded at me, took off his hat and left. I locked up and went home and dreamed of men with grey hair and glass eyes. Simon Jones strolled around his office impatiently whilst drinking a glass of bourbon he had poured himself two hours earlier. He was waiting for the CEO of a competing company to arrive so they could attend lunch together and discuss the civility of their situation. In frustration, he threw his glass against the wall and it shattered everywhere. The phone at his desk buzzed and he jogged over to pick it up. Mr Jones, the competition has arrived, sir. Good, was all he said before slamming down the phone and heading to his elevator. He pressed the button and the doors slid open silently and smoothly. He smiled to himself and adjusted his tie around his bulbous neck. Whoever that dumb assistants of his had hired, they had done a good job. Jones took one step forward, but his foot found no purchase, and he fell, screaming thirty-four stories down an elevator shaft to his death. After my boss died, his brother took charge. He was a great guy who gave me a promotion and a pay rise. A touch of class. There was an investigation, but when tested following the incident, the elevator functioned perfectly. I was asked to show the police the number and the webpage of the mechanic I had called, but the page had disappeared. And when I called the number in front of the police, a mechanical voice informed us that the number did not exist. However, one warm evening I was walking back to my apartment and a grey van swerved around the corner. The glassy-eyed man was behind the wheel. It may have been my imagination, but he turned quickly to me, doffed his hat and gave me the briefest of smiles, before disappearing around the next corner. I never saw him again, but the words on his van, overalls, hat and webpage, are forever stuck in my head. We 
fix everything. Bandwidth for the Mysteries Abound podcast is provided by TalkShoe at TalkShoe.com. The show notes with the links to all the articles is held at the Origins podcast website, origins.info. We have a Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash Paul Rixie. No donations to the podcast since last time, but if you'd like to make one, you can find a link at the show notes page. It's all done through PayPal, so it's quite safe and secure. I'd also like to give a shout-out to Aubrey Batchelor, who's one of our listeners. On his Facebook page called Conspiracy Sector, he has some stories that you may find interesting. So look at the show notes, click on the link, and see what you think, everyone. So until next time, this is Paul saying bye for now. Keep well, keep safe, everyone, and thank you for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.